Welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that, you know, just really tries to have a good old look at the problematic issues in the wellness world. My name is Lee Freiling. My name is Jenny Omani. And I'm Annika Buckle. As always, you will have our forever gratitude if you are enjoying this, if you share it, if you leave us a little review on your podcasting platform. Um, it means way more to us than you probably know. <laughs> And before we dive in today, I also just want to leave a little content warning. Um, we are going to be talking a lot about dieting, diet drugs, calorie restriction, weight loss. Um, if that is not appropriate for you to listen to today, that's cool. That's cool. Go, you know, we're going to tell you to go watch animal videos because that's always a good antidote to support your mental health. Um, but just know you never have to push through something that you're not ready for. Um, and having said that, I will also personally be poking fun of some of these drugs over time because they are actually ridiculous. Um, so to get us started, I'm going to do a little rundown of the history of diet pills. So I think it's important to note that diet pills, um, while aren't super old in the grand scheme of like humans, um, are emphasis on physical appearance is as old as time. Um, and it has changed over time, right? There is a period of time where more voluptuous women were actually favored because they were thought to be more fertile. Um, it showed that you could afford to eat. So it was actually a sign of class. Um, so we really do go through quite a trajectory in terms of what societally we view as beautiful and acceptable. Um, but it always comes with rules. Interestingly enough, of course, men had these two in terms of like their facial hair, um, how they were supposed to dress. There was a lot of class-based dressing in particular based because it showed how much money you had and how you could um, afford to pour into yourself. Um, so tale as old as time. History brings, um, or sorry, in looking at history of diet pills in, you know, particular, they actually kind of come in the late 1800s, which does sort of make sense as you see sort of corsets becoming more the look, um, that smaller waist becomes trendy. So, you know, it, it, it's not, you can see how you can deduce, well, if I'm trying to like do my corset up super tight, geez, it's easier to have a small waist if I am smaller before the corset gets on there it was kind of like imagine? we figured out that like everybody finally had enough to eat and we're like okay well that's no longer a marker of status we got to find something else now <laughs> which actually it's funny you mentioned that because that's totally a thing so anytime something becomes um like more achievable to a broader group of people we really do see this hmm. pattern of now it needs to be exclusive right? Like, mm, oh, so now a lot of food, sense. right. is becoming maybe more accessible. I don't exactly know what was happening, happening industrially around the 1800s with food, but I would imagine that it was maybe being transported a little bit better. They were, because they were colonizing and whatnot, they were getting different types of foods. They were growing them. I mean, there's, there's probably, if you look at like an agricultural perspective, a reason why we see this, this shift, but it's like, as soon as anything becomes somewhat attainable to more than just, um, the wealthy elite or a certain group of people, then it, it has to switch, right? It needs to become like a niche. Everything has to be like trendy and niched out. I mean, the elites are gonna elite. You know, <laughs> it's going to happen 
one way or the other in this right? particular capacity. Oh, I'm sorry. We're all a little bit too plump and happy. <laughs> Let's get skinny. Good idea. Well, and so they brought pills in in the 1800s for this. So let's keep in mind that there's like no um, real way of like testing proper dosing. Like, I mean, these pills would have been a clusterfuck of ingredients <laughs> and potency because they just didn't have like, there. there's no FDA. There was literally nothing regulating these. So the first group of diet I mean, pills, are these in the days when it was like rub heroin on your child's gums if they're teething? Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, right? I or mean, if you have a fever, let's bleed you for a while. You know, I was going to like, how to open yeah. a vein and let some of those. Well, let's the humors. Totally. Humors. I was going to say the humors. humors. So the first group are referred to as fat reducers, and they're based on a thyroid extract, hmm. um, which increases your metabolic rate, right? People that have hyperthyroidism, like their metabolism, metabolic rate is really high. Obviously, that's a diagnosable medical condition, and having like high excessive thyroid function is a problem that needs to be um, addressed. Um, so not ideal. Um, they, so the thought at the time was they jack up the metabolic rate. I don't even know if they really knew what metabolism was in the early 1800s, to be honest with you. Um, but not surprisingly, there were some side effects that came along with this, um, treatment plan. Um, (laughs) right. And it's all cardiac related, which, makes sense, of, right? Of the course same it is. Yeah. <laughs> side effects of hyperthyroidism, right? So abnormal heartbeats, um, tachycardia, feeling weak, having chest pain. And then some people died because obviously too much of a good thing is like too much of a good thing. Um, but interestingly enough, they, this like thyroid based diet pills didn't stop, like weren't <laughs> cessation didn't happen culturally till the 1960s. So it's like a hundred, wow. 160 years ish of people having like documented cardiac issues. And, but, but losing weight is healthy guys. Common Don't carry you on. Know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, the pain of being beautiful. Um, in the 1930s, uh, another weight loss medication comes out called dinatrophenol, dinatrophenol, dinatrophenol. I don't know. It's a whole lot of like latin shoved together um and it was actually um a thermogenic so it like raised your body's sort of metabolic rate raised your temperature um so not surprisingly there were um several deaths reported from hyperthermia because once again 1930s we're not having like there's no like real dose recommendations there's no like precise compounding that's happening here. So a few people literally, um, cooked to death in their own bodies. Uh, right. That is so horrifying. I know it's, it's like really gross, but yep. Um, they had damage to like sense of taste, cataracts, rashes. Um, but the good news is once those people overheated to death, uh, there was some laws that were put in, put in place that gave the FDA greater control um, over production of, uh, medications and this medication was actually stopped. So the FDA did their job. They're like, people are literally overheating and dying. Maybe we should reach our hand. Into, that, should uh, we do a thing? Is this a thing we should do? <laughs> um, 1950s, uh, amphetamines, uh, come into play. Yes, that is meth. Um, for people wondering, yes, meth would be the street version of amphetamines. 
amphetamines. Um, interestingly enough, and the most of these diet pills are going to come going forward. Uh, a lot of them are going to be from side effects of other medications, right? So like if you look mm -hmm. at Viagra, for example, like that drug wasn't actually manufactured uh, for impotency. That drug was for, for pulmonary hypertension. And there was a side effect that they then dosed specifically to and capitalized on, right? So the amphetamines actually started in World War II and they gave it to um, soldiers to keep them alert um, and to keep, them to keep them vigilant um, because they were, I mean- you know, on the front Going lines and severe trauma constantly. Yeah. yeah. And they, and it was literally do or die. And so that was the choice choice they made. Um, I'm sure the context in there would actually be really interesting to, to, to get into, but that's where it started from. Um, and one of the side effects was appetite suppression. They noticed this was appetite suppression. So then of course, Oh, ding, ding, ding. They start prescribing it for weight loss. Unfortunately, the risk of abuse and the psychological and neurological effects um, are way more significant than the value um, of the medication. So the pros and the cons did not line up. Um, and interestingly enough, if you look at uh, Hollywood during that time, amphetamine use was really, really common. Um, mm -hmm. Even like uh, you, I don't know if you've it's, it's, I've definitely heard about this and I looked it up to verify it. Um, the Kennedys, Jacqueline Kennedy, Onassis and JFK, um, they both were, they had a doctor who came and injected them with amphetamines to keep them going through like their grueling, um, schedules. Judy Garland, um, actually was given amphetamines during the day and then barbiturates to sleep at night to counteract the amphetamines when filming, um, the wizard of Oz, she was 17 I was going to say um, she was a kid. He was a kid. And MGM, uh, it's documented that they started doing this to her and she was 14. Ugh. So yeah, this is this, sick. yeah, super so sick. So, I mean, it just goes to show, like, if this, this Hollywood has been creating this very unrealistic and unattainable standard for such a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, as far as giving teenagers, like minors, children... Mm -hmm amphetamines, um, and barbiturates to keep them skinny and awake during the day. And then they'd have to counter the barbiturate with the barbiturate. So they'd sleep at night. Right. Um, yuck. Yeah. Super gross. Um, all right. So then we get back. So we, we use amphetamines for a while, very trendy. Um, and then in the sixties, they actually saw a resurgence of thyroid, um, medications for weight loss treatment. Mm -hmm. But in order to counteract all the side effects, they just gave more drugs. So they'd give them diuretics, <laughs> laxatives, like there, there'd just be like a whole whack. Could you imagine just like peeing and pooping all the time while being like jittery from like your thyroid going crazy? No, nope. it sounds like, it sounds like me when I have too much coffee. Totally. <laughs> a bit, but as you're like, I feel so anxious, but I'm going to pour myself another cup. <laughs> Make it not make fun. Sense. Not fun. <laughs> no. Right. Um, in the seventies, they start using ephedrine. Mm. Um, ephedrine. so that comes in. Oh, oh, ephedrine, um, ephedrine comes into play. Um, was, and ephed then was ephedrine like a, a thyroid based or was that no back to the, um, amphetamine? Mm, no. So ephedrine, uh, you it's, it's actually in a lot of, um, cold medications and it can help with, um, like, 
uh, it can help with like, they were using it for like asthma treatment and, and whatnot. Um, it can sort of enhance your cardiovascular activity, which is why it's banned for like NFL and athletes and whatnot. Right. That's why a lot of, um, cold medications can't actually be used for, um, professional athletes because they causes like bronchodilation. And there's, it's like a gray line as to whether it's performance enhancing or not. Like, right. obviously if you're super sick and congested and like, can't breathe properly, it's not performance enhancing, but if you, but how, like, and how do you, you yeah, know, especially in a professional the line? sports setting, how do you decide? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then we kind of come to, um, the seventies, the nineties, and this is when a medication called fenfluramine was approved for weight loss. So this is, if you've ever heard of fenfen, it was a really popular weight loss drug mm -hmm. deemed to be quite safe, um, prescribed to, I don't know how young, but definitely prescribed to minors, um, for weight loss, um, really popular in the nineties, especially, um, in 1996, 18 million prescriptions were written for it in the States. Wow. Like that's a lot, it's a highly prescribed drug. Right. Um, and then not surprisingly, once again, heart issues start coming. All of these drugs basically seem to at some, in some way affect the cardiovascular system. You're jacking your metabolic rate up. And when your metabolism's cranking, chances are you got some cortisol being released there. Your body starts sort of fight or flighting, and it's just quite taxing over time. Right. Um, so you do see quite a bit of pulmonary hypertension, um, and like heart lesions, heart issues. Um, and this drug, so Fenfen is actually removed from the market in 1997. So keep in mind its peak was in 1996. So one year huh. after it's like full peak is 1997 when it's removed. And my guess is, is that a lot of, um, because it was being so widely prescribed, the side effect rate was being yes. captured a bit better especially well, when you work with a younger population. And this is what I find so interesting about all of this, right? Is like, we continue to see and hear this narrative that like being in a fat body is dangerous for your health. So you should do anything you can to be in a smaller body. And then the side effects of, you know, taking a medication like this to get into a smaller body is like, oh, cardiac arrest. But that's yep. definitely better than being in a fat body. So worth the risk until it's not anymore. You know, well, that. and if you look at in a very extreme situation, Judy Garland died from a drug overdose. Like she was literally put surprise, on surprise, drugs. They started putting her on drugs at 14 and then she yeah. got addicted. Can't imagine how yeah, like she was, she was, she didn't like adults put her right. on drugs. For, I mean, it's like, it's like way. horror stories you hear of people with lots exactly. of childhood trauma, right? Like, yeah. oh, my mom, you know, wanting to be accepted, wanting mm -hmm. to meet their parents approval. I don't know anything about her parents, but I'm willing to bet you got some show parents there. Oh, if you're sure. 14 year olds, how could you not? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's you're a minor. A, Your parents have to be a little bit, at least a little bit pushy. If you end up the Culkins, like the that. Jacksons, the yeah. right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. So Fen Fen comes off the market in 1997. And then there's this kind of like lull where people are using diet pills. They don't disappear. Um, but there's definitely a shift because of all of these profound cardiac issues. So all of these medications are basically, like I said, they're driving up the body's sort of fight or flight response. And when you're in fight or flight, all the blood is being shifted to your 
your heart, your lungs, to your muscles so you can run, it's being diverted away from your digestive system because if you're running from a bear or a cougar, you don't need to digest food, right? Your body's smart. It's like, no, 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 no. We are preserving all energy to stay alive. That means, you know, we're not digesting food. And so the side effect of those medications was appetite suppression because your body thought it was running from a tiger. Because your body was trying to keep you alive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So then we see a bit of a lull and there's a lot of um, gastric bypass surgeries. Uh, Those surgeries really get enhanced um, and niched down in terms of making those more safe and and whatnot Um, until our latest sort of uh, drug of choice. Well, I shouldn't say it's the the one that's in the headlines the most now um, due to the shortage, our friend Ozempic, which Annika is going to talk a little bit about. So, um, you probably have heard or, you know, read in passing something about Ozempic, but if you are like me, um, you kind of didn't really, I mean, I generally try to tune out anything related to, um, weight loss, diet, drugs, just as a general rule for my own mental health. Um, but I, what I found really interesting as I dug into some of this is, um, I just kind of want to make a distinction around like names and uses. So what we're really talking about when we, when you'll hear the term Ozempic is actually a medication called semaglutide sold under the brand names Ozempic, Wagavi, and Ribolusis. Honestly, I, drug manufacturer names. I just, I know. they're so they, dumb. What are they thinking? Yeah. Sure. Oh, so anyways, so I might have butchered bad. them, but they're stupid. So I took They're care. stupid. How could you not butcher them? <laughs> Just leave them in the like long Latin combination <laughs> names because at least we we're, we have like somewhat of an appreciation for the fact Semaglutide, you... I can say. Wagavi, Wagovi, Wagavi. I don't it know. It sounds like anyways. a bad guy from like a movie. I just watched Enola Holmes. So it's like, sounds uh, very Moriarty, like totally. <laughs> Moriarty's counterpart. Okay, totally. Sorry, carry on. Um, so this distinction is actually really important as really, really important, far more so than you might think as we get into kind of what's happening lately, but I'll talk about why that is in just a second. First, I just kind of want to go through what exactly semaglutide is and how it works in the body. I am going to heavily rely on Jenny to clarify anything that I get wrong because you as a nurse probably have more context for this than me as a woman who did not take even a great 12 science. <laughs> um, and I will also clarify that as a nurse, I work in intensive care and hundred percent, the only treatment I provide for diabetes is insulin. <laughs> so this is not my area of expertise. It's not your wheelhouse either. I know a couple things about the pancreas, but other than that, <laughs> that's not my wheelhouse to be very clear. <laughs> um, so semaglutide is an anti-diabetic medication used for the treatment of type two diabetes. It is a glucon like peptide one receptor anagist. Okay. Okay. Meaning it mimics the action of human glucagon-like peptide, GLP-1, thereby increasing insulin secretion and increasing blood sugar disposal and improving glycemic control. So what the fuck does that mean? First, if you're like me and your working knowledge of diabetes is like something, something a proper blood sugar can't, uh, something, something, then (laughs) uh, welcome me also. Um, I'm going to outline a few things in a way that makes sense to me. And when I'm done, Jenny can correct me. (laughs) So type two diabetes is a condition in which the body does not use insulin normally and therefore cannot control the amount of sugar in the blood. 
Semaglutide works by helping the pancreas to release the right amount of insulin when blood sugar levels are high. Insulin helps move sugar from the blood into other body tissues where we use it for energy living. It also, semaglutide also improves insulin sensitivity throughout the body. Insulin's job is to remove sugar from our blood and put it into our cells so our body gets to use it for energy. So it's not just like floating around and hanging out. Um, when- to use like a very popular wellness term, this medication is, and Annika and I talked about this when we were doing our research for it. This medication is literally going to the root cause. <laughs> and all of these wellness warriors with like, they don't want you to go to the root cause. They just want to give you a pill. It's like, no, no, this pill goes to the root cause, your pancreas. And is like, dude, you are sucking at your job. Let me help you do your job better. Here, here is a support so you can do what you're actually supposed to be doing. It's actually mm-hmm. kind of amazing. I mean, it's, not, it's, it's actually fascinating. And yeah. when we look, you know, particularly in people with diabetes, the list of side effects is actually fairly minimal. You know, when we're looking at something that's actually, you know, getting to the root and addressing what's going on. I mean, in a lot of ways, these um, GL, GLP-1 you know, related drugs are actually a really imp- impressive win for diabetes. Totally. So. And diabetes is a disease that is hugely impactful, not only fiscally in terms of like healthcare spending and how much money goes into treating diabetes, but it's awful to have diabetes. Like if you are somebody who has diabetes, it's really hard to your food becomes all encompassing. Mm -hmm. Um, the side effects of having diabetes that's uncontrolled for a long time. Like you're talking about amputations, like Mm -hmm. kidney failure. Like it's a big, it's a really big, um, walking wounded disease. My boyfriend, um, in my twenties, his dad had really severe unchecked diabetes and he went blind and it's It's a really horrible disease. And that's why there's so much focus on it. Um, because of that anyway, sorry, carry on just more to like, I think there's a lot, but I also think there's a lot of, um, uh, oh my stigma around people with type two diabetes, because there's, it's something you develop as an adult versus type one, which you're is, is pediatric kids are born with it. It's basically, well, Annika will tell you, but it's like, you just, your, your little pancreas doesn't make insulin. So Right. It's not insulin type two is your body doesn't really process insulin properly. Type one is you just don't even make it at all. Yeah. And diabetes is something that can be, um, overted with lifestyle changes. Um, and so therefore there's a lot of stigma for people that do have type two diabetes because it is preventable in a lot of cases. I don't know what's statistically how many, how much of it's preventable versus not, but a, a good chunk of cases of people with type two diabetes it is preventable and it can be, um, stepped down and minimized, uh, with lifestyle changes, but the lifestyle changes are very, uh, they're a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's there, it's nothing. It's like diet exercise, really close glucose control, taking medications. If you are not somebody who has the means, time, energy, all of those things support to do that. It's, it's a very arduous task. And even if you have all support, it's a, it's an arduous task to mm-hmm. handle it. My mom was pre-diabetic and that was the scare for her to get healthy. And it was a, it was very, very challenging for her. And she's someone who wanted to be healthy. She has like three university degrees. She's well-educated. She's, you know what I mean? She's all the things. And it was a huge undertaking for her. Right. 
So we can't well, emphasize that enough. And it and it becomes, I think, you know, it walks hand in hand with our with our, you know, anti-fat bias as a culture yeah, is totally you brought this on yourself. You deserve whatever bad things happened to you. You should have worked harder, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, which is uh, very unhelpful and continues to be unhelpful in almost every situation that we'd like to employ it. <laughs> yeah. That's a little... um, so it's important here to note that semaglutide also works by slowing the movement of food through the stomach and therefore may decrease appetite and also cause weight loss. We're going to put a pin in that because that's going to be important in a minute. Um, but now that we kind of have a basic understanding of this particular diet drug du jour, um, and at least how it works for diabetes, let's talk about why the brand names matter. So mm-hmm. in January, 2018, and I'm using the Canadian, it took a little bit of digging. Cause of course, every article wants to tell you about when the FDA approved it, but I'm going to tell you when health Canada approved it because we are a Canadian podcast. After the FDA is, uh, is definitely the answer. <laughs> Um, in January, 2018, the injectable version named Ozempic was approved by health Canada in April, a version, which can be taken by of that same year, a version, um, which can be taken by mouth ribelesis, 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 uh, was approved. And in November, 2021, they approved Wagavi, Wagovi, I don't know. Moriarty's sibling. Moriarty's compadre, Wagavi. This is a higher dose version that is specifically approved for weight loss. So let's talk in a little bit more detail about that. Kind of like Jenny was talking about earlier. A lot of times we end up with medication that's a side effect of another medication and we discover it does something else. Wagavi is technically the same as Ozempic in that both are a once-weekly injectable preparation of semaglutide, but where your top dose of Ozempic is um, 1 mg, with Wagavi, you go up to 2.4. So that's a pretty significant change in that. The other difference that's key to this part of the conversation is what they are approved for. Ozempic is technically only approved to treat diabetes, where Wagavi is only approved for the treatment of weight and obesity. Interesting. Hold on. They're the same medication. They're just different doses. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's, direct- that's very interesting. Right. But, but that's also because when you study something, you study a specific dose range. So, and it'll be probably weight-based that they were studying, like- right? And then for the diabetes, and then they probably, to market it differently, did a different study. Do you know what I mean? Like that's why it's the same drug, different dose, but the way that they studied it in a cohort way, because they were looking at different endpoints is probably different. And then that's then the, you know, the bulk of the safety data that you have and therefore what you go to you know, regulatory bodies for approval on. Um, Directly from Novo Nordisk's Canadian press release announcing its availability starting late 2022, Wagavi is indicated as an adjunct to a reduced calorie diet and increased physical activity for chronic weight management in adult patients with an initial body mass index, BMI, of 30 or greater obesity or 27 or greater overweight in the presence of at least one weight-related comorbidity, such as hypertension, type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, et cetera. So in theory, this is only to be prescribed when somebody has a high BMI, PS, the BMI is trash, but anyways, and also has another comorbidity. 
Because bodybuilders also have a high BMI. I have technically a BMI that makes me obese, but I can also deadlift 265 pounds. So fuck you. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And this is what the BMI misses, right? The BMI is, I mean, removes all context. It literally takes height and weight. Yeah. That's it. That's literally it. It doesn't look at body composition. It doesn't look at any like other health factors, aerobic capacity, lung function, blood. Pre- it looks at literally nothing other than height and weight. And it's a formula. And there you go. And, and the formula and- was based off of yes. white men in yeah. Europe. And Every- for- everything is based off of white men in Europe, your seatbelt <laughs> placement, your steering wheel in your car, where the airbag deploys. And the numbers that people decided were overweight and obese were for insurance purposes. Mm-hmm. Like health insurance purposes? Yep. It was a life insurance risk calculation. So the next time somebody tells you the BMI is real. And let's also, let's also just remember like the rock is morbidly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like, well, that's why they have to I tell myself that that. I always feel better. (laughs) But that's why the, the, um, the, uh, prescription, like the recommendations are the BMI plus another comorbidity. Yeah. And you know, Jenny, you and I talked about this a little bit, but I mean, does that mean that that's only how it's going to be prescribed? No, you know, especially no, those are guidelines, right? Yeah. So can you find, and we'll talk about this in a minute, if you're a celebrity and you have the money, can you just find somebody to prescribe it to you regardless of any of your health markers? Yep. Of course you can. Michael Jackson could find a cardiologist to run a general anesthetic on him at nighttime to sleep. We, we all know spoiler alert. It didn't end well, but like, if you can find someone, if money can pay for you to literally be anesthetized at nighttime. I mean, I'd love sleep. I'd be so sad to miss it. No, this is a totally total sidebar. We're not going to go there, but General anesthetic sleep is not restful sleep. And there's a million reasons for that. But anyways, so neither here nor there. (laughs) If it's Wagavi, Wagovi, that's approved for weight loss. I can't, it bothers me that I can't say it. Like, I don't like it anyways. Um, That's approved for weight loss. Then why exactly have we been hearing about an Ozempic shortage, which is probably what you've heard if you've come into this with any sort of knowledge about what's happening here. This shouldn't come as a surprise. given what Jenny just taught us about the history of weight loss drugs, but this is all thanks to a little something called the Kardashian effect, or if you'd like a TikTok weight loss trend. Mm, Good times. One of the delightful gifts that 2022 brought us was a whole slew of conversation around famous people using semaglutide to lose weight. Remember when Kim Kardashian lost 16 pounds in three weeks to fit into that Maryland dress at last year's Met Gala? That she ruined because she actually didn't fit into it. And it's like a vintage old dress. Immediately, social media started speculating that she used it, which was compounded by her sister, Chloe, who has had continual weight loss year over year, depending on which greasy gossip rag you read somewhere between 60 pounds in four years and 50 pounds in six months. Oh, those are very different, (laughs) very different Um, outcomes. (laughs) Keeping in mind, Chloe was also the host of a show called Revenge Body about losing weight to make your ex feel bad about breaking up with you. But when social media started speculating on her use of this weight loss drug, she said, and I'm just going to pop this in the chat if one of you wants to read it. Lee likes reading. In your your best Chloe Kardashian voice. 
Um, well, considering I literally don't watch that. I don't I was just gonna no, say no. I couldn't do that for you because I let's no, no, no. not I, I let's not discredit my years of working out. I get up five days a week at 6 a.m. to train. Please stop with your assumptions. I guess New Year still means mean people. Okay. So she didn't say no. Yeah. No, she just said you're mean for thinking that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like, the- I work out. Okay. Right. <laughs> let's not discredit it. That's not the only reason, but let's not discredit it. Yeah. I have Tag- no doubt that like girlfriend works out. I have no doubt. And... And the also, recommendations were for it to be given in combination right. with diet just and exercise. Doctor's orders, everybody. She's just following doctor's orders. Yeah. Listen, for all we know, I mean, Chloe Kardashian, who I know 0.01% anything. I don't know which one she actually. is. There's oh, too many she's of them. the one the media calls the fat sister. Well, I don't not know, any. but all their names start with a K and they, uh, right. I don't know, they blur together so, with me. Chloe Kardashian legitimately <laughs> is very, very tall. Yes. Who is she? She's like a tall, curvy girl. So for all we know, Maybe she the BMI bullshittery to qualify <laughs> for this nonsense. Who knows? There's, a, there's an image in the chat for you of her before and after. She, oh no, I'm just mean. I'm not going to say anything. I was just going to mention that she's had a lot of plastic surgery because her face is literally completely different. Right. Definitely has had a lot of plastic surgery. That just kind of makes me sad seeing people yeah. like that, to be honest. It's it's yeah. unsurprising. I mean, if you live under a microphone where your entire yeah. job is to be paid for being famous and yeah. you get that money by how you look, it's, I mean. Famous for being famous. Yeah. That's well, they're famous because of OJ Simpson. <laughs> Initially, yes. Initially, um, yes. So, I mean, the kicker out of all of this is it actually doesn't matter if they use semaglutide or not. No, it doesn't. People think they did, which yeah, is, of course, did. yeah what set TikTok ablaze. We can also thank everybody's favorite drunk uncle, Elon Musk, for ascribing <sighs> it, his weight loss on Twitter. Oh, good. Oh, good. So um, remember when we talked about how semaglutide mimics the hormone GLP-1? So it targets areas of the brain that regulate appetite and food because it makes users feel full faster. It can lead them to lose weight. It also slows down the digestive process. So food sits in the stomach for longer periods of time, giving you a continual sensation of feeling full. This feeling of satiation. Yeah sends a message to the brain which blocks the release of hunger hormones that cause food cravings this is why along with dietary restriction and exercise that is approved as a weight loss drug but wait ozempic isn't used for a weight loss drug so why are we having an ozempic shortage Hmm. surprise surprise because people went crazy with wagovi it stocked out and then in its place doctors and finger quote doctors started prescribing Ozempic in place of it, uh-huh. which has meant that Ozempic has now also stocked out, which means people who need it for their diabetes can't get it. You know, the diabetes community took a real hit this year because between this bullshittery around continuous glucose monitors, oh yeah, and like all of this kind of stuff now, like the people who genuinely needed it, you know, can they get can they can they get their hands on it? You know, if you're just like Joe, whomever, and like, maybe you're paying out of pocket and like, you're not a Kardashian or you're not Elon Musk, right? Like, and these are people who might have to like inject themselves with insulin if they can't medically manage, right? Like that's the alternative. If you can't 
which also manage it with you know medications and if you don't have coverage is not necessarily you know an inexpensive option for you right the needles aren't even covered i know in canada there's a like my i have friends that are diabetics and they're livid that they have to pay for um, stay alive yeah yeah yeah. right so as the trend takes off surprise surprise a lot of health professionals are starting to question the safety of using an off-label drug as well as even for Wagavi, Wagovi, it's long-term effectiveness for keeping weight off. Right. Guess what? Big shock to you at this point, I'm sure, but it actually doesn't necessarily work for sustained long-term weight loss. Hmm. A 2021 yeah. clinical trial found that people regained most or all of the weight they lost after discontinuing the injections. Yes, I will link that in the show notes. So might you lose weight if you take it? Yeah, maybe. Will you quote unquote keep the weight off? Not unless you continue to use it forever. And of course, we don't have the safety data for years and years of continued use. And more importantly, right now, long-term reliance on Ozempic for weight loss will continue to exacerbate the global drug shortage. Hmm. Are there alternatives that people with diabetes can do instead? Yes, of course, as we just talked about. But the shortage of Ozempic is also causing a ripple effect with other injectable GLP-1 agonist drugs. So again, like every other supply chain issue we've seen over the last three years, the knock-on effect continues again, because we have this continual obsession with this idea that being in a smaller body is the only way I can be healthy. Well, and unfortunately, you know, there's been new recommendations come out from the American Academy Mm -hmm. of Pediatrics or American Pediatric Academy. Um, around really radical treatment measures for um, children, especially who are who are deemed to be obese, um, because of what they feel like are the long term consequences, and they have basically recognized that the stuff that they have tried to get people to do thus far around diet and exercise doesn't work. Right. So sure. There are some people for whom maybe have like a completely, like maybe they're genuinely eating 5,000 calories of high fat, super processed, whatever it happens to be food per day. And they manage to figure out how to eat more within a, you know, uh, appropriate for their body and age, you know, calorie amount, and they're getting more fiber and more protein. Like maybe, maybe there are some of those things that happen. And yes, some of those people, you know, can, can drop weight, but the fact is, is that 95% of people regain their weight. And, you know, in mm-hmm. studies, uh, you know, I listened to a fascinating podcast recently where they cited a study done between uh, uh, two schools. So this was even done with kids, yes, right? So mm-hmm. two schools with kids where one school, there was a huge emphasis on like movement, daily movement, exercise, the food options in the cafeteria were, you know, quote unquote healthier, you know, got rid of pop way more. They brought parents in to educate them. Yeah. The whole, it's, the whole yeah. schlamazel, they did it over a long time. It was like a very sort of legitimate it's like thousands study. of kids. Like it was a big, big cohorts. Yeah. yeah. And lo and behold, there was no difference between the two cohorts at the end of the study. And see, this is what I find so interesting because in one breath now, you know, the conversation around this is obesity is genetic. It's a disease. And then in the next breath, we literally say with these recommendations, but put your two-year-old on a diet. Yep. Yeah. So which is it? And those recommendations. Yeah. And do really. Sorry, go on. Go on. No, no, sorry. I'm going to say exactly what you are. Go. 
And the recommendations are to put these kids not only on a diet, but to give them really intensive, basically Mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy and their parents and their parents to get them to rewire their brains around food, which especially in the U S who the fuck's going to pay for that. And also who the fuck is going to facilitate that they're asking for like 27 hours of this shit. Like, mm, Mm -mm. I can say this from being somebody who used to work a lot with, um, uh, kids with autism back in the day, you know, the recommendations, and I can't say if they're the recommendations still now, because I'm not involved in that world anymore, but you know, at the time we're up to like 30 hours a week of ABA therapy for kids on the spectrum. That was nuts. It was like a full-time job for these little people. And that really only worked for families that could work it out. And of which like, that's not everybody plus work it out meant like, yeah, you got some funding from the government, but you also had to pay for part of it. Like, mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really hard. Now I do, I will say that I appreciate that in a sense that when they're coming out with this, it's genetic, it's a disease. It is looking to absolve part of this individual responsibility. It's all your fault rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think one of the reasons why they're still leaning so hard on like diet and exercise is because they genuinely don't have anything else they can offer beyond surgery and hard, these like drugs that they know that the second somebody stops taking them, all that weight's going to come they, back. They stop working. <laughs> yeah. Plus they have no long-term studies. They have definitely no long-term studies on kids. Yeah. Right. This is the thing. We can't, we can't solve anti-fat bias by making fat kids thin. This approach really just tells them that trusted adults believe that the bullies are right. Their fat body is a problem to solve. Yep. Yeah. 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 (sighs) And not to be too, it was capitalism all along about it, but but it always is. That but is the message of our whole podcast, everybody. <laughs> you take nothing away from this whole schlamazel. It's just this exact thing. Because here's the thing. Capitalism isn't actually interested in solving this problem. Green no. spaces are expensive and don't have any monetary ROI. Food security, especially fresh food, is very expensive, now more so than ever. Yeah. And when everyone's focus continues to be like, oh, government fat cats are spending too much money, less government spending, then we end up with zero real world action supports for people's health above and beyond off-label weight loss drugs that cost $1,500 a month for the wealthy. Yeah. $1,500 a month. Yeah. If you want to take Wagabi, that's what you're, that's what that's $1,500 a month. Yeah. Sweet Jesus. Yeah. And again, this is, you know, oh, maybe you have coverage, maybe you don't have coverage, but a lot of times, even if you have coverage, something like this is not going to be covered, right? Not a new drug that if it's off label, it's not going to be covered at all. We right. had to get, it's hard um, enough to get on label things approved if you yeah, have coverage, my especially was, in the US. <laughs> totally. My daughter was on an off label asthma medication when she was little and the amount of paperwork that our, that the specialist had to fill out to have this like $250 inhaler covered because it was off label was remarkable. Now, fortunately they did fill all that stuff out. So we didn't have to pay 250 bucks a month for this one inhaler, but like, but that's not going to be the case for everybody. I mean, even my dad's doctor prescribed daily medication delivery for him because he was not you know, in a capacity to remember to take his medication every day and his extended health stopped covering it. They would have covered it if he had gone and picked it up, but they wouldn't cover 
it anymore if it was daily delivery, even though that was prescribed as doctor because he couldn't take his medication anymore. Well, and there's a guarantee there'll be some. Thank you, Green Shield. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Some insurance providers, too, would look at this as a cosmetic thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it's like on one hand, no, no, this is uh, being classified as a disease. Obesity is a disease. Um, We know it's linked to all of these different outcomes. All this needs to be taken seriously as a disease. But I guarantee you the insurance company that doesn't want to pay for it will be like, no, no, it's cosmetic. Well, that makes sense as to why in Canada it's linked to at least one more comorbidity, right? Right. Because so then the, you can say, oh, it's this it's for hypertension. It's, it's yeah. for sleep apnea. It's yeah. for it's for whatever, what have you. Oh God. It's just, it's such a clusterfuck. Mm-hmm. You know? Like it just, it just really is. And you know, here's the thing that I think is really is really hard is that if you are someone who lives in a fat body and you don't want to live in that fat body for whatever reason, because your reasons are yours having at this point, the only sort of like medically provable option be $1,500 worth of like meds for the rest of your life, potentially the rest of your life. Well, but do you know what's covered? Bariatric surgery, bariatric surgery. Right. Which also, which, and that, I mean, again, if, you know, looping back to the American pediatric recommendations that, that, you know, permanent pretty like intensive surgery is recommended for a child as young as 13. I mean, I just, yeah. Our constant attempts to shrink our bodies have not made us healthier. (sighs) Gosh, But I I do have to say on one side of it, I have a family member who's had bariatric weight loss surgery and it literally saved her life. Mm -hmm. So like there's, it's, it's all in the nuance, right? Like, do I think that 13 year old should be out having bariatric surgery is their frontline intervention for, um, their weight. That's perceived to be an issue for whatever reason by whoever. No, but, um, I have to say that the way it was conducted for my family member was really well executed. There was a whole lot of like teaching that went into it. Like Mm -hmm. there was a, it was, and it literally saved them. So I can, like my and, and personal we can bias that a lot of things might have a time because a it's all in the nuance, right? Like context is so, so important. Um, and for this person, um, binge eating was a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the thing I think is also so interesting, which is like, you know, maybe not necessarily a totally appropriate sort of analogy or whatever, but you know, here's the uh, APA, saying bariatric surgery for 13 year olds and then states like utah just banned any kind Mm of uh trans affirming care medical care for minors right so even though all of the medical psychological children everybody 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 is like uh, gender affirming care saves lives right right they're like oh but no we can't so sorry they banned trans affirming all, all trans affirming so, so medical surgery, care, medication, medicine. so hormones, like everything. everything, everything. And arguably, I mean, I'd have to look at the bill, but I don't know if that extends to psychological services, right? Because typically when you're actually going to go through transition, there's a whole lot of psych, you know, psychology that sure. ends up going, going into it. Yeah. Um, which, which I mean, makes sense. I think anytime you're going to do anything that, um, you know, has yep. like long standing permanent you like you would yeah 
Well, yeah, that makes sense. You want to make sure someone's well supported in the um, direction that they're, you know, that they're standing firm in. Yeah. Yeah. So sense. we do that by uh, making access impossible. Perfect. Great solution. Perfect. This is, I think the kicker too, right? Is <laughs> we're, we're making problems out of not problems yeah. and we're not solving things that are actual real problems. Well, and it's very paternalistic because you're literally telling somebody what they can and can't do right for themselves. Right. Maybe the tagline tagline for this podcast should actually be, it was the patriarchy all along. (laughs) You know it was. (laughs) Um, Well, that was was depressing. uh, That was fascinating and uh, deeply depressing. So thanks, guys. That was great. (laughs) I mean, the good news is, guys, we're not, um, you know, shelling out meth for weight loss anymore in westernized cultures. Just saying. (laughs) I will also just follow up. Like, you don't... um, you don't need to be on TikTok for weight loss trends. You just don't. You you can look at funny animal videos instead. Or just not be on TikTok like me. I'm the only person. But I'm it's not fine. on TikTok either. It just seems like too much work. Just seems like another time suck hole to fall down into, which yeah. like I need more than that. Gosh. That's very true. Gosh. Well, thanks for that. I guess so so going forward, I guess um is there talk about providing preferential prescription filling for diabetics. So very interesting. Um, the, uh, Novo Nordisk, uh, stopped manufacturing the introductory doses of Wagavi, Wagovi. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the 2.25 and the 0.5 with the idea that like, stop putting people on this right now, because we actually need all of this inventory to be going over to people who have diabetes. So, you know, is that like a very band-aid solution? Did they come out and say, Hey, please, we have a shortage, please stop prescribing it for this. But then like it continues to be available. Yes. That all happened. Because it's really easy (laughs) to take something at a higher dose and make it into a smaller dose. The same way it's really easy to take something in a smaller dose and double it (laughs) to make a higher dose. So like all... (laughs) Yeah, it's Not, totally so, like a so no. <laughs> well, I mean, meanwhile, they're just going to be ramping up production is what they're going to be doing because they're a business and they're I mean that's how here's that's how the businesses thing. work. <laughs> Big pharma absolutely exists and is a problem, but that doesn't mean like two things can be true. Right. It doesn't mean that it doesn't also have a really important role in improving and saving people's people's lives and livelihood. Well, but and what a brilliant also example big pharma, is Ozempic, right? Yeah, right. Totally. They figured out, ooh, this thing that we've like discovered, you know, for this real health problem that people have also has this side effect. It's like Viagra, right? It's yeah. like, oh, yeah. can we make money off this thing that's like, I mean, far less important than what we were originally looking at? Yes, we can. Right. I would guarantee you they make more money off of that than pulmonary hypertension <laughs> treatment. <laughs> Gosh, (laughs) guaranteed. Thanks so much for listening to Nile. We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.